Well, this morning we want to continue through our, gos- our study of the Gospel of John. And in my midweek email this week, I had said this week we were going to finish chapter 7. And I got in my study, I started writing, and I only got through 11 verses. And that might be a tad long. So, <laughs> so I'll just pray for patience from you. It might take us a, a couple weeks to get through the end of chapter 7. That's a much more dense passage of Scripture. There's lots to explore and unpack there together. But this morning, we're going to be in John 7, verses 14 through 24. And this is 2020. It's an election year. It's a year of decision. And if you weren't aware that this is an election year, congratulations on waking up from a coma. <laughs> These days, you cannot log on to the internet. Is that, is that a phrase still? Do we still log on to the internet? Maybe? Okay. Uh, you can't pick up the phone. You can't go on the internet. You can't turn on your TV without being confronted with an ad for some politician or something. Something's going on. Everything's election-related, it would seem. Now, every four years in the United States, and I know I'm not educating you about anything, but for our vast audience abroad, I inform you of this, Every four years here in the United States, we have an election to decide who will be president for the next four years. And for me personally, one of the highlights of every presidential election that I have ever witnessed have been the debates. Love presidential debates. For sheer political pageantry, nothing beats it. Debates are thrilling, I think, for the same reason that watching a tightrope walker is thrilling, right? Something could go horribly wrong. And we've all watched those debates where it sure did. Uh, It was a primary debate, but I remember watching uh, Rick Perry in his oops moment a couple years ago. Remember, he was running for the, uh, I think, the candidacy of the Republican Party, and he failed to remember some important stuff about his own platform. He just went down in flames. And I'm one of those guys who's sitting there with my popcorn going, yeah, this this is why I watch. I watch the debates like some people watch NASCAR. I'm just watching for the accidents. It's true. I'm that guy. But it's a high-stakes gamble to go out on that stage. It's high stakes, and things could go horribly wrong. In a debate, the safety net of teleprompters and prepared remarks are taken away And the candidates have to respond off script and in real time to difficult questions and the jabs of their opponents. And all this while millions are watching at home and forming their judgments. Verses 14 through 52, the passages we're going to be spending some time in in John 7 for this week and next week and possibly a week beyond that even, they remind me honestly, of the high-stakes drama of a presidential election. It's prime time. Guys, it's the Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. People from all over Israel have gathered to Jerusalem in throngs. In fact, it was a matter of law that all males had to show up at this festival at some point during the week. The place is packed. Nielsen ratings would have been off the charts. And a huge crowd has gathered on the Temple Mount. And verse 14 tells us that Jesus went there to the temple and began teaching. However, this will not be a prepared speech, as we'll see in the coming weeks. I'm sure he had some things he wanted to say. But doesn't get far into it when, just like at a debate, Jesus begins responding to questions from the crowd and from his detractors. In 1960, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon squared off in the first nationally televised presidential debate in American history. Richard Nixon, who had recently suffered a bout with the flu and was still running a low fever on the evening of the debate, and who additionally had spent the day leading up to the debate on a grueling schedule of campaign stops, did not look good in that debate. Uh, People had put him in a suit that matched the background, background, so he just kind of got washed out. And whereas John Kennedy, when uh, the, the moderators would ask questions, he would speak his answer directly into the camera, Richard Nixon spoke to the person who had asked him the question, which made it look like he was avoiding eye contact. He looked sweaty, drained, exhausted, because he was sick and exhausted. 
and he wasn't making eye contact with the American people. He was washed out. He got lost in the background. And what's amazing is after the debate, those who had listened to it on the radio when they were polled gave Nixon a slight edge. They thought maybe he'd won. But those who had watched it on television when they were polled, John F. Kennedy won by a much wider margin. The optics were just that bad. Well, later in his memoirs, Nixon blamed the visual comparison between himself and Kennedy under that glaring spotlight of a nationally televised debate for his loss that November. He said, quote, I should have remembered that a picture is worth a thousand words. All of his words didn't amount to much based on the optics. Now that debate was a high stakes gamble for Nixon and Kennedy because it would have a big impact on who would eventually win. And there are some similarities between a presidential debate and what we're witnessing in John 7, but there is one really big and really important difference. It's a huge difference. A presidential debate is high stakes for the candidate, but this was not high stakes for Jesus absolutely was not. It was not high stakes because Jesus couldn't lose. The outcome is not at all uncertain. Jesus holds all the cards. It's not like if Jesus failed to win a majority of the crowd in Jerusalem to his side, his kingdom would never become a reality. It is unstoppable, irreversible. It's coming in like the tide. It can't even be slowed down. The sparring between Jesus and the Pharisees that we witness in chapter 7 should be understood, though, as a high-stakes thing. But unlike a debate that is high-stakes for the candidates involved, these exchanges are high-stakes for us, for the crowd of onlookers, for all those who listen in at that time or through the word of God and understand the true import and meaning of this sparring session that we're going to bear witness to. Because people are forming judgments about Jesus in the midst of this exchange, just as people form judgments about Nixon and Kennedy. The issues that are going to be raised could not be more high stakes because it's eternity not the next four years that hangs in the balance. So we dive in, verse 14, and we'll read up through verse 24 of John chapter 7. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And I keep, making, I keep pausing here and pointing out that when John speaks about Jews... He is not speaking about people who are ethnically Jewish. This is shorthand for the Jewish religious authority, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests. So those who are there, the elites, the, the religious authority, marveled when they saw Jesus teaching, heard him teaching. They said, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Which, you have a demon. I don't think they're actually accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. I think this is their colloquial expression for, you're crazy. You're, you're smoking something. <laughs> this is their equivalent of that in that culture. You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There are some background elements in what he has to say here. 
Uh, We read last week that the reason why Jesus hasn't been going down to Judea is because they're seeking to kill him down there. Uh, They put a contract out on Jesus, and he's not going to go down there yet because it's not yet his time to die. Uh, He's not avoiding death. He's just going to die on his term at the right time in the fullness of the Father's time. But the reason why they want to kill him is because he healed a man on the Sabbath, which is a violation of the law, I guess. It's all very confused. But that's what Jesus is talking about here at the end. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. We're not told what he was teaching, but just that he was teaching. And that really is the point. His appeal to the crowds was based on his word, not his miracles. I think that's the pointed thing about what's being revealed here. Do you remember in our study from last week, in the first 13 verses, his brothers were encouraging him to go up to Jerusalem. Why? To do what? To put on a big spectacle of performing miracles so that everybody would kind of ooh and ah and he'd have an even bigger following. They said, if you're doing these things down here, you should really go up to Jerusalem and do that. Lots of people would see that, be amazed, You've had a, you'd have a much bigger following. That's what we talked about last week. Jesus rejected that advice and here he is at the temple in front of the big crowd and instead of saying, doing the David Copperfield thing, he starts teaching. He starts sharing his words. And this never seems to go well for Jesus. Do you remember in the feeding of the 5,000? After he feeds the 5,000, this incredible huge sign, this display, this miraculous display of power, they're so excited, they're so enthused about Jesus that they want to right there make him king. And he has to slip away before they can do that. They're that excited about him. But then the next day, Jesus begins to teach and explain the significance of the sign from the day before, and what happens? They all leave him, and by the end of chapter 6, he's left asking the disciples, are you guys going to leave me too? So that's that's one thing. And then we also know that in Romans 10, we're told that faith comes by hearing the word of God. I think this is why we find Jesus teaching rather than putting on a big miraculous show. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing miracles. In fact, believing in what you have heard in the word of God is the miracle. This was John's point, I think, in comparing back in John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. John compared, in a compare and contrast kind of way, the word-believing Samaritans in chapter 4 with the sign-demanding Israelites in chapter 5. That was the main point of our study from last October of that time when Jesus heals the official son. In the story of the woman at the well from John 4, we see this wonderful progression of faith among the Samaritan people. In John 4.39, we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony. Remember the woman at the well, Jesus speaks to her, says, I am the living water, and whoever drinks from that will never thirst again, and blah, 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 it goes on from there. Jesus believes in, uh, this woman believes in Jesus. She goes and tells all her neighbors. In verse 39, they said, we believe because of that woman's testimony. But then in verse 41, it says, many more believed because of his word, because of what Jesus' word. And then in verse 42, the people of Samaria say this, They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now it's important to see here that their belief in Jesus was rooted not in his ability to do miraculous signs, but in his word. And again, there's a wonderful progression of faith in these verses. A woman has a personal life-altering encounter with Jesus, and as usually happens when people have such an encounter, she goes and tells others all about it. She becomes an evangelist right away. And they believe her story at least enough to go check Jesus out for themselves. Then when they do, they give him a listen, and they also end up having a personal transformative encounter with Jesus. And on the basis of what Jesus says, that belief deepens to the point where they openly proclaim that he is nothing less than the Savior of the world. Not just the hope of the Jewish people, but the Savior of the world, even Samaritans. Now, for me, there's a great hope in this. 
If you, like me, have people in your life who have not yet put their trust in Jesus for salvation, and you want that, you're praying for that, you're doing what you can, I think very often we feel burdened with this sense that somehow what we're bringing is not enough to create belief in them. Jesus, if you could give me the power to work some kind of miraculous display, I mean, if the clouds could part, if some huge big thing could happen that I could make happen, then they would believe the words I have about you. Take note here that Jesus, when he goes up to the temple and he's got all the crowds, the Nielsen ratings are off the chart. This is his prime time moment. He does not in that moment work some big miracle. What does he do? He teaches. He shares the word of God. And that is the only thing on which faith can truly rest according to the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. You are not meant by God to be a miracle worker. You are meant to faithfully give what has been entrusted to you, which is the word of God, and allow him to work the miracle of belief in response to the presentation of the word. That's it. You know, in the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus and John were very carefully instructed how the food was distributed, Jesus took the bread and the fish from the boy from his lunch and he breaks it gives thanks and then he gives it to the disciples who in turn give it to the crowds what a picture of our role in the efforts to take the bread of life to the hungry crowds that surround us as a church all they did was take from jesus the miracle and faithfully distribute it they did nothing miraculous everything they did was just faithful and obedient and God worked the miracle in the midst of that. The church is this strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. And this is very encouraging to me, that even Jesus based people's belief on his word. And that's what has been entrusted to us. Now, in the, what comes next, Jesus is going to teach on what the, what the hallmarks are, what the identifying characteristics are of a true teacher of the word and a true receiver of the word. So Jesus gets up in front of this large gathering at the temple, which is a crowd mixed with ordinary workaday type people and also the elites, scribes, and Pharisees. It's just like a presidential debate where everybody from the pundits to Joe the plumber are just tuning in to watch. It's the ultimate kind of democracy. Everybody's there. Everybody's forming judgments. They're appealing to everybody, the ordinary man and the elites alike. And the elites who are there, they're the most learned teachers of the law. They're amazed at what they are hearing. Again, in verse 15, they marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Apparently, Jesus' teaching was so compelling, and he had such powerful insights that revealed such an incredibly deep understanding of not only what God had said in his word, but its base, most essential meaning, that despite themselves, these guys just kind of have to admire this man's craft. To borrow a modern expression from our own culture, Jesus has got game. Game recognizes game here, and that's just undeniable. He's bringing the heat, and they're recognizing that. Maybe begrudgingly, but still. They recognize that Jesus has extraordinary skill and insight as a teacher of God's word. I mean, he's up there and he's really hitting every point. He's got the crowd hanging on their every word. Which, by the way, um, speaking outside is very hard if you've ever done this. There's wind blowing, there's kids crying, there's sounds, there's activity, there's hustle and bustle. Uh, I imagine that part of what they were responding to was not only Jesus' skill, but the attention of the crowd. In that outdoor space, I imagine, he just had everybody in rapt attention. That would have been very striking. Now, Jesus either overhears them saying this sort of thing, or he's given supernatural knowledge of what they're saying. But even though it seems like their thoughts are complementary of him, what he says next is going to move things in kind of an undeniably confrontational direction. One of the reasons I think why we as American Christians living in 2020 might have some difficulty understanding some of the dynamics at play in this exchange 
specifically why the scribes and Pharisees are so alarmed by what Jesus says next, is because of really the great freedom we enjoy when it comes to spiritual things in the society in which we now live. As Protestant Christians, we exist within a faith tradition going back all the way to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And that movement reoriented the church back around God's word and taught, among many other valuable and true things, the supremacy of the word of God as our sole authority for faith and practice as Christians. We don't look to human interpreters of the word or the traditions of the church as our authority. We have been, we've been encouraged always to look directly to the word of God as uniquely authoritative in our lives. And you judge human teachers like Josh Tate according to how faithful we are in handling the word of God. You don't change the word of God according to what I say. You change your opinion of me according to how faithful I am in teaching the word of God. And that's right and good. We reject the idea of being spoon-fed the interpretations and musings of some guru or priestly class. We've been taught to critically evaluate new ideas that we encounter by holding them up to God's word to see if they are true. And if an American Christian doesn't agree with the doctrinal stance of a church or the teaching of a pastor, they have the freedom to go elsewhere and join themselves to another fellowship. These people, though, that Jesus is addressing live in a completely different spiritual context. They have no such freedom. Most Christians today possess some competence in understanding and interpreting God's word for themselves. And even when they don't, their church leaders encourage them to mature to a place where they can. Cult leaders want people who will accept whatever they say. Christian pastors want people to search God's word for themselves. However, in Israel at that time, the people largely relied on human interpreters of the law to tell them what it said and what it all meant. For starters, most of them were functionally illiterate. They couldn't read and write. Also, this was, these were in the days before printing presses, and the cost of obtaining the word of God for yourself was prohibitive for any but the most wealthy in society. Jesus was speaking to a crowd who from birth until adulthood had never studied God's word for themselves. They'd been told what it meant by others. There were gatekeepers. There were layers of humans between them and God, who, and God was seen through them through this broken filter, this broken prism of their interpretations. They had never seen God correctly because they had only ever gotten a glimpse of God through their human guides, these Pharisees, who had given them a very flawed view of God Almighty. And now Jesus assumes the podium and he's going to break that prism so that God can shine through unfiltered into their eyes for the first time. And it's, con it's controversial, to say the least. In fact, in God's word, uh, we, we learn this, that nobody in this system became an authority unless they came up through their system and had their stamp of approval, these Pharisees. However, in Matthew 15, 14, Jesus calls these same teachers of the law blind guides to the blind. And he famously said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So all this puts things in a new light when we hear those words, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? I think part of what they are thinking to themselves is, He's not one of us. This guy's gone rogue. He's maverick. He doesn't graduate from our schools. I think on the one hand, they're impressed with Jesus because he's ascending to such heights in the craft of teaching without ever having been formally instructed in the art. But I think they're also alarmed because to whom is he accountable? Who shaped this man in his thinking? Who's putting their seal of approval on him as he's talking? The crowds are listening. They're paying attention. 
and he's a crazy man. <laughs> I think this is part of what they're saying and thinking. <clears throat> and we know that this is part of what they are thinking because of something they will say at the end of the chapter. We're going to get to this later. I don't, won't spend much time on it later, but at one point, at, towards the end of the festival, they're going to send some men to arrest Jesus. They've just had it with Jesus. And so they said, just arrest him, get him off the streets. He's a threat to good public order. Get him in here. But the people they send to arrest him, they come back empty-handed to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they never arrested Jesus. And when they are said, where's Jesus? How come you don't have him? They say, by way of an excuse, no one ever spoke like this man. They're so overawed by his personal presence, by the adoration of the crowd, by the powerful, the power with which he was speaking, that they just, it felt sacrilegious to lay hands on him because it was. <laughs> it was. But when they say that, no one ever spoke like this man, what are the Pharisees, what is their answer? Well, they say this, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of your human guides, have any of the authorized, approved interpreters of God's law bought into his bunch of malarkey? Worthy standard. That's what they say, essentially. None of us have believed him, and that's who you should trust and follow. Us. Not God's word. Sure, what he says seems to make sense. He's quoting the Bible a lot but you're too thick in the head, you don't understand it. <laughs> you need us, and none of us have believed him, and we're super educated. In other words, we're the recognized authority, and we're all in unanimous lockstep agreement that Jesus is a dangerous maverick whose teachings are not true. Trust us, we're your guides, and he's not one of us. That's their message. So when they marvel at Jesus' abilities as a teacher, even though he lacks credentials from any of their schools, Jesus answered them by saying this, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Earmark that verse. We're going to come back to it. It's very important. And then this one also very important. Is anything Jesus ever says not important? But these are particularly important. That's, a, that's the mark of what a true teacher of the word is. And now in verse 17, he's going to talk about what the true mark of a receiver of God's will is. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now in this answer, particularly in verses uh, verse 16 and 17, Jesus describes, again, those hallmarks that mark who are true teachers of God's word and who are the true receivers of God's word. Let's start with the true teacher thought. Here's what Jesus says makes teaching authoritative. And if you've ever taught junior church, if you've ever led a small group, if you have aspirations to become a pastor or a missionary, if you ever feel like you need to open God's word and explain it to children, to your own children, to grandchildren, whoever, pay close attention to this. This is what Jesus says makes teaching authoritative, period, full stop. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's it. Where do we get the message of him who sent us? John 20, 21, Jesus said after he was resurrected, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. We've all been sent, and we've been sent, entrusted with a message. Where do we find that message? What are we supposed to tell people? And I'll tell you where it's from the Bible. Now, the pulpits of America today are just riddled with pastors who share their... Uh, really, I don't think invite people to experience Jesus so much as they invite people to experience their experience of Jesus. We, we walk away from sermons feeling like I have a good sense on that pastor's sense of humor, what his family dynamics are like, what his childhood was like. We learn a lot about that. We don't really necessarily hear the word of God. Maybe I'm even guilty of this at times. But when my preaching is adequate when it's good it 
ish <laughs> is when I am faithful in just letting you hear the word of God, helping us understand and hear what God has said. And I, I really, if my, I'm most excited, like I really think today's uh, opening weekend for football, right? And football is always is weird in these times and all that, I get all that, but um, when I was growing up, uh, one of the people that you, I noticed, you only notice them when they make a mistake are the referees, right? The refs only, you only notice that they're there when they blow it. The rest of the time, their job is just to make sure there's an even playing field so the athletes can take center stage. You see that they make everything fair, no fouls. But when they blow a call, all of a sudden, their center stage, the camera's zooming in on them, their face, everybody yelling at them, right? I think being a teacher is very similar to that, where when we're most successful, you don't even notice me. You're just drawn into this conversation with God in the midst of his word. And there I just blew it by bringing attention to me, even by making that point. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, my teaching is not rooted in my experiences or my opinions. He didn't quote other rabbis. It's important to note that the leaders in Judaism at that time, the way they taught, would they would say, well, according to Rabbi so-and-so, according to this learned scholar, they would quote all these rabbinical sources as a, to lend authority to what they were saying. Jesus did none of that. He's giving them the unfiltered word of God. And as Christians, we should know that what people need from us is not a deeper understanding of our lived experience or our opinions or our feelings. What they need is the Word of God. What we've been, what teaching is should not be ours, but that of Him who sent us. We should have verses on our lips. Uh, last year, I challenged us all to memorize that Romans road of salvation. We were doing the profiles in conversion, remember? And there's those verses in Romans where if you memorize them, that's basically everything you need to walk somebody through God's plan for salvation. And I really think we need to commit ourselves as God's people to memorizing God's word as it relates to salvation. This is what is authoritative, that's what's needed. There is this fluffy way again that many Christians engage with the world in which we hedge our conversation in our own lived experience, our own opinions, folksy wisdom, how things make us feel, as though you can hang a hat on any of that. But it's clear that Jesus... In, the, in those days, could have been received very differently if he had done that. Instead of sharing the word of God, he could have done other things and he would have been phenomenally popular. And this is also something to pay attention to. It's clear that Jesus could have been very popular in those days if he had chosen to be. If he had said what people wanted him to say, if he had done what they wanted him to do, if he had been whom they wanted him to be, they would have loved him and they would have made him king. And really, isn't this the tension that surrounds all of our efforts to engage with the world as Christians today? What are you going to say? What are you going to do? What kind of person are you going to be? And really, the arithmetic is very simple. You, 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 again, another football analogy, Deion Sanders, if you've ever watched his color commentary on football, whenever there's like a cornerback who avoids a tackle, <laughs> he goes, that's a business decision. <laughs> it would have just cost too much to take that hit. Could have ended his career. There could be millions of dollars on the line. So when he sees a running back barreling down the sideline and just kind of sidesteps that guy, Deion Sanders goes, that's a business decision. That makes sense. Could have tackled him maybe, but it might have cost him years of playing football, making millions of bucks. And I think Christians look at a lot of things in the world and we make a lot of business decisions. Is it worth the hit? But worse than that, I think some Christians actually change what they say. They don't just not say anything. They actually start changing what they say. They actually start changing what they do. They start to become a person other than who God has called them to be. And that's not a business decision because it will cost us much, much more than the disapproval of man. 
And so I think it's very important to realize that what Jesus is experiencing here is what he has called us to. On the one hand, it's very easy. We say, all I have to do is faithfully distribute what God has given me. All I have to do, I don't have to do miracles, I just have to faithfully give the world the word of God. But is there anything about that in this current climate? No. Not really. I mean, it's easy to put it on Facebook. That's easy enough. People can like or dislike it. They can ignore it. They can ghost you. It doesn't matter. It's really hard, though, in conversation with another human being where their approval is on the line to say what ought to be said, to live in a way in which we ought to live, to be the kind of people we ought to be. And Jesus doesn't do the business decision. He doesn't sidestep the cross. He goes all in here. And this is, again, the tension that we face as Christians today. There is tremendous pressure on the church in the midst of such incredible moral confusion in our society today. To go along to get along, to say other things than the plain teaching of the Bible. The Bible has some very unpopular things in our current climate to say about a great many things that are hot-button issues. And are we just going to avoid that? Are we going to still stay true to the Word of God, or are we just going to clam up, or worse, change? Are we going to be conformed to the patterns of this world, as it says in Romans, or are we going to be transformed by the Word of God? But Jesus says in verse 18, whenever a Christian says what people want them to say, and does what they want them to do, and becomes who they want them to be, it is because those people are seeking their own glory, not the glory of God. When churches change their views on morality to fit the polls, not to fit what God has said plainly, that is because they love the glory of man, not the glory of God. They want the attaboy. They want to fit in. They want to go along. They want to say we're empathetic. When really the most empathetic thing you could do is to love people enough to share a difficult truth. As Christians, we acknowledge that we've been entrusted with a message that is not ours, but that of him who has sent us. Now, I believe that most lies that have ever been told have been spoken out of fear. Fear of getting caught. Fear of failure. Fear of disappointment. Fear of loss. And make no mistake today, if you're a Christian and you are not sharing your faith, that is a lie of omission. And like any other lie, it is certainly born of fear. It is fear of exactly what happens to Jesus. But fellow Christians, you've been called as a follower of Jesus to be a sincere, from the heart, imitator of his example. And Jesus loved people enough to let them see God even when they hated him and crucified him for it. People around us would see Jesus. They need Jesus. And I think sometimes we lack the courage to show them Jesus. So that's what it is to be a true teacher of the word. Is we don't come with our own message, our own thoughts, our own opinions, our own feelings and lived experience. None of that stuff matters worth a hill of beans. We bring people the word of God. And on the one hand, that's great news if we're not creative or particularly compelling or great orators. But on the other hand, it's bad news (laughs) because sometimes that's way more offensive and harder. And then we come to true receivers of the word. In verse 17 is contained an important principle for us. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I think this is possibly what the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees found most alarming in what Jesus had to say. And we may not first see this as an assault on their authority, but who does Jesus point to as the one who will rightly interpret the law? Well, it's not necessarily them. In that culture at that time, if a teacher wanted to be seen as authoritative— they would have sought the endorsement of the Jewish religious authority. But Jesus does not do that. 
he makes it plain that true followers of God who delight themselves in God's character and who are truly from the heart eager to obey him will recognize the Father's voice when he is speaking through Jesus or through any other teacher. And this is a bit like when Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Part of hearing their voice, the voice of Jesus, is that you are Jesus's, that you delight in him. And this cuts the Pharisees out altogether as a necessary guide in interpreting the word of God. In other words, if you had asked a Jew in that time, how do we know God's will? They would have said, Rabbi, whoever, tells me that this is the truth. And Jesus here says that whoever, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's a very interesting thing to say. And I'm not saying that we should do away with formal Bible training, seminary, being accountable to others. Like, honestly, if I just went rogue and started teaching some wildly bad things, there should be some people who are, have some knowledge of God's word who could say, guys, Josh is, and to quote the Jews here in this pastor, he has a demon. <laughs> He's crazy. He's lost his mind. And uh, that's, that, that should exist to a certain extent, I think. But the big point here is this. The principle that we should be careful to draw out of verse 17 is this. If we come to God's word without a willingness to do what it says and to submit and be yielded to it, then it will not be revealed to us. Where there is no heart for the truth, there is always a heart against it. When we come to the Bible, can we truly say to God, I'm about to read your words, God, and whatever you show me in there, I'm going to do it. Can we say that? I think the church is full of people who would die for God who won't live for him today. People who want God to speak to them, but who are actively ignoring what God has already said in his word. They want, to give, they want God to give them some assignment, some big thing to do. But when God observes their lives, he sees that they have not obeyed what he has already told them to do. When he sees that we are faithful and obedient in a little, he will entrust us with more. Uh, I had this thought this week, and honestly, it had never occurred to me before, but sometimes when I come to God's word, it's just like, mud i just don't i don't see anything in it it looks confusing to me i read it and it's just i my mind drifts i read a couple pages i can't remember a word i just read other times i read and it's just like insights are popping off the page hitting me in the head left and right what is the difference and it occurred to me this week that maybe in those seasons where I'm coming to God's word and I'm not seeing much in there, it's because I'm ignoring him elsewhere. Maybe. That could be. Am I coming to God's word with a heart that's eager to do the will of God? Or am I coming to him in the midst of disobedience? In the midst of wild ignoring, just sticking my, la, 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 la. And then I open God's word and I say, speak to me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Right? And so Jesus here gives us a really important principle, which is that we, when we come to God's word, we must be willing to do what it says if we are to see what it says. In Psalm 119, 33 through 35, this is a passage that seems to corroborate this kind of thought. It says, Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees. I want to see that I may follow it to the end. Do you see the heart behind the psalmist in this moment? Teach me your decrees that I can follow it. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Delight. Can I say that when I come to God's word? 
Can we? I think it's an important principle. This is a mark of a true receiver of the word of God. And then we do not have much time to spend on this. I'm going to read these verses. I have just a few thoughts in closing. But really the way Jesus ends this part of the exchange, which we're going to take up again next week uh, with the next part, but he goes on then to illustrate uh, what it is to be a true teacher and a true receiver of the word of God. And he does that by giving this example from Moses and his law. And again, we're not going to spend much time on this. It's really just a, 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 an, an illustration Jesus uses from God's word to ram the points home he just, we just talked about. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Apparently, the crowd was not aware that the Jewish religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus actively at this time. So when Jesus says, you guys are trying to kill me, the crowd goes, you're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. Because I don't think they knew yet. But Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, uh, he's talking about the fact that when a Jew was born, on the eighth day, they had to be circumcised to agree with Moses' law. And if that eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, on which work is prohibited, I don't know why I said that in Spanish, muy prohibido. <laughs> it's muy prohibido on the Sabbath to do that. <laughs> they, uh, I just lost everybody right there. Okay. Uh, then they did the circumcision on the eighth day, which Jesus points out, hey, that's, how is that any different than me healing somebody on the Sabbath? I mean, that's the deeper law, isn't it? You make somebody right spiritually by circumcising them on the eighth day, according to the law. I healed somebody on the Sabbath. I made the whole body well. He's really just pointing out that when the Jews come, and again, I'm saying Jews as these religious authorities, not Jewish people, when they come to the law, they're not coming with a heart that's eager to do God's will. They're coming to God's law with, a, 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 a like, what is the letter of the law? What must we do? What's the obligation here? What's the duty? They don't delight in God's will or his character. They just want to, this is, we're going to check all the boxes. This can't be done. This can be done. Blah, blah, blah. So here he's talking about teachers and receivers of the word of God and the great hypocrisy that comes when we don't love God when we come to his word. When we come to God's word without a love for him, what we're left with is hypocrisy, dry, dusty legalism, all this stuff that we see here in this passage. And he points out that they're angry with him. They are seeking to murder him, uh, to kill him. They have a heart that wants to kill Jesus, and they're, they're criticizing him for making somebody healthy. There's great moral confusion here. And Jesus is cutting right through it all to point it out. And everybody there, I think, in the place was seeing it. And again, I'm reminded of those presidential elections where everybody's watching and I think the Pharisees, in the eyes of many, had to come off looking pretty stinking shabby. They're exposed. They're revealed here for the empty, false teachers that they are. All of a sudden, Jesus is breaking that, bro that prism through which they've been seeing God in a filtered way, and God is shining through in an unfiltered way. They're catching sight of him for the first time, and to some, it's troubling to some it's confusing, to some it's offensive, and, but to some it is just the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. You're telling me all along this is who God really was and he's for me, he's good, 
He's a God of grace and mercy. He's not a God of judgment. He's not a God who makes us jump through hoops to placate him. He's a God who would do for us what we can't do. This is very opposite of how they've been raised. It's earth-shattering. It's like if I said to you this morning that the capital of the United States is Cleveland, Ohio. You would say, no, it's Washington, D.C. That's crazy. They're just The whole world has shifted, is shifting for them as Jesus teaches. Things are new. This isn't what I've been led to believe. And I'm looking forward in the next couple weeks to unpacking the rest of this week because there's going to be some more in here that Jesus is going to say that people have honestly never entertained before. There's, and that's what's exciting for me to find in these passages. There's things that Jesus is going to say that to us, well, yeah, that's how it is. That's our understanding if we've been Christians for very long. But it's exciting to think how raw and new this was when it was first spoken on the Temple Mount. And people, and it was like the sun coming up. I really do believe that. So please come back next week. We're going to dive in some more. But this week, let's be faithful to give people the word of God. And when we come to God's word, let's pray that audacious prayer. God, whatever you show me, I'm willing to do. But be careful. (laughs) Don't pray that prayer if you like your life the way that it is. God does have a way of challenging us when we pray those kinds of prayers to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are great. We thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes of our heart to see the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a spirit not of timidity but of power. Father, we have seen in your word this week some challenging truths about who you've called us to be and and the spirit with with which we are to approach your word. And God, I at least came away from my time of study this week feeling like I have not been a very faithful teacher at times. And certainly there have been seasons, God, where I did not come to your word with a yielded, obedient spirit. But Father, I'm, I'm encouraged by your grace, by your mercy to me that In response to those thoughts, you don't heap judgment on me, but you extend grace. Your mercies are new every morning. I don't walk with shame in your presence. Jesus died for all that, and it's done. It's paid for. And Father, going out of here, I'm just excited to take things back up with you, to approach your word in a different way, to approach those who you've put in my life with your words on my lips. God, help me to say the things that I should be saying, to do the things in my life, to live in a way that I should be living, and to be who you've called me to be. Whether that brings approval or disapproval matters not, God. I just want to be with you in the doing of it. God, help us to live in uninterrupted fellowship with you this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.